Main Engine Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and today we have a very special guest with us. It is Bob Pierce, the Associate Administrator of NASA's Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate. He is the head of aeronautics at NASA, uh, which is a very important part of NASA. We always forget, uh, I, I say we as in space nerds, tend to forget that the first A in NASA is aeronautics. Uh, it is a huge part of what the agency does. It's a huge part of what the agency does that makes its way into normal people's lives and... Uh, something that I think a lot of people can connect with even more so than human spaceflight. Uh, so it's definitely an important part of the agency and something that I have not talked about on the show up until now, which is a real shame, but it's a great opportunity to dive into what they're working on, uh, the things that the at that part of the administration does and how it works, how it differs from some of the space side, how it interacts with the space side. So we're going to have a long conversation about everything they're up to, the way they work across centers, uh, how it all goes down on the aeronautics side, and, and what things we should be watching for the near future. So without further ado, let's talk to Bob. All right, Bob Pierce, welcome to Managing Cutoff. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us for a while today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Before we get into the aeronautics side of it, I do want to hear about your history and how you got to where you're at today, um, because it seems like you have quite a cool story. Uh, you've been part of NASA since, I think I read, 1990. I won't tell you what year I was born, but it was maybe the next year. Uh, so my entire life, Bob Pierce has been at NASA, and I'd, I'd love to hear the kind of things that you've been involved in there or, or before, if there's any stage setting that you'd like to do as well to, to tell the story of how you got to uh, your role today. Sure, absolutely. So, so yeah, so I'm, a, I'm an aerospace engineer. Um, went to school at Syracuse and, and later um, did a graduate degree at MIT. But uh, I actually started at um, uh, Grumman Aircraft Corporation back when there was a Grumman Aircraft Corporation. Um, now it's part of North. Several Aircraft. names ago. <laughs> Several names ago, yeah, yeah. So did um, um, aircraft design and, and development and test and so forth. And, and so probably the, the, the biggest highlight there is uh, my work on the X-29 um, aircraft, the Ford swept wing demonstrator, um, was part of the, the design development and then uh, later the flight test out at Armstrong. And, and actually that's where um, I got to, to know NASA was my time at, at then Dryden Flight Research Center, now Armstrong Flight Research Center. Um, and the industry was, you know, as I said, it was Grumman back then, but the industry was starting to go through consolidation. So um, after the X-29, um, you know, I was going to stay out in California and do some additional work for Grumman, but uh, but things didn't work out that way. So I decided to go ahead and go back for graduate school. And then I knew enough folks at NASA that they invited me to, back to, to, to NASA. So um, And so since then, I've been, you know, in aeronautics. I've been in aeronautics my entire career. That's kind of... Um, who I am and, and, uh, you know, I've done, you know, various, um, you know, uh, program project management jobs at, uh, NASA, um, strategy formulation, which is really what, um, you know, I, I probably enjoyed the, the most is kind of the big picture. Um, spent a little bit of time at OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy at the White House. I also spent time over at, um, FAA, um, helping with the next gen air traffic management system. I was a deputy director over there for, our joint planning development office and got to know FAA quite well. And then, um, came back to, after that came back to aeronautics and, and, um, and helped, um, aeronautics then develop, a um, uh, develop a, a strategy for the future, which we actually continue to, to implement. And, um, and so now I, now I find myself as the, the head of aeronautics as, um, as the AA and sort of for me, you know, I guess my, my dream job to, you know, to be at the helm here, during, you know, what's a really exciting time in, in aeronautics and aviation and aerospace in general. 
Yeah, let's talk about how the mission directorate fits in to NASA overall. Because, um, you know, the, the people that know their history out there will think back to NACA and, and where NASA got its roots, roots. But, you know, a lot of the space nerds today have a tendency to forget that aeronautics is in the name as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, mission directorates, maybe, maybe a rundown on, on how mission directorates operate and what aeronautics is, is tasked with as part of NASA. Sure. Yeah. So, so mission directorates by, you know, um, you know, by implication, by the name, you know, they are, um, have the sort of the program authority, uh, mission authority to, to actually, um, plan, develop, um, and, implement NASA's major uh, missions and the programs that uh, are within that. So for, and, but we do that through um, the centers. I mean, that the, the centers are the basis for, for NASA capability um, and for our operations and, and research and development and, and everything else. So, so the, for aeronautics, you know, we, uh, we operate through the research centers. Um, and so there's four research centers across NASA um, on the East Coast, there's the Langley Research Center down in Hampton, Virginia area, and and they they're probably the um, have the broadest set of capabilities um, of the research centers. Um, you know, uh, primarily focused on on everything to do with um, airframe, but have um, also expertise in engine airframe integration and flight deck and air traffic management um, and other areas. And then if you start to head west. You get to Cleveland, and that's the Glenn Research Center, primarily responsible for um, all things having to do with propulsion, air-breathing propulsion, and 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 otherwise, and 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 also with um, communications. Um, and so we use them um, to work uh, comnav surveillance type research um, as part of air traffic management. You get out to the West Coast and in Northern California and Silicon Valley is the Ames Research Center. They also have a broad um, portfolio. They they do work. Um, in flight systems as well as in uh, you know uh, vehicles, but their primary um, portfolio for us is in air traffic management and airspace autonomy, um, you know things things of that nature and, and related. So a lot of the, you can think about um, it, you know from a, a current perspective things like um, you know, UAS and 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 other other um, you know novel vehicles that need to operate in the system, and then down south in California in the high desert um, on the Edwards Air Force Base is the, is the Armstrong Flight Research Center, which does all our flight, you know, airborne flight research. So, so if we need to bring things to flight, um, that's a perfect place to, to bring it to flight and they have all the capabilities to do that. So we, um, everything we do, that said, everything we do, um, we don't do it on a center by center basis. We, all our programs and projects are multi-center in nature because, you know, the nature of the research we have is, is really multidisciplinary. Um, and really requires cooperation amongst the centers. And so we've really gotten good at that, you know, to, to try to be more boundaryless type of organization and, and, um, and to work seamlessly across our centers. And so that's really one of our sort of core, um, core values is to, is to operate like that. And of course, the other aspect to it is, you know, we don't, you know, NASA doesn't, it's not an operational entity from an aviation perspective, right? Those are, you know, the, the military, there's the airlines, there's others that operate, um, and there's also commercial development, right? So we, everything we do is in partnership with industry, other government agencies and so forth. So like I mentioned, air traffic management, we work that with FAA, all the vehicle stuff, we work with aircraft manufacturers um, and so forth. So, you know, we, 
in obviously DoD is a large partnership. Um, even though we we don't have a military mission, a lot of technologies have crossover, dual use, and so forth. So we work a lot with them. So we we do a lot of partnership, and I think most maybe most importantly for you know for your listeners, um, you know while our mission is aeronautics, much of what we do as as crossover to the space side as well. Um, if you're going to get to space, you got to go through the atmosphere, and so. <laughs> Many uh, many space systems are tested in our large wind tunnels, um, and many of the methodologies that are used for design are are based on um, developments we do in, in computational fluid dynamics, um, computational materials and structures, in the VNV of complex systems and software, um, and so on. So there's a lot um, you know that we do on the um, aviation side that has application to space. Uh, this is a random thing that just came up, but um, I was down in Florida for the first Artemis One attempt, and we were on the beach and looking up in the sky, watching the WB fifty seven uh, fly around to take some imagery. So the the fleet of these aircraft that you know the nerds like to track in in NASA's inventory is are are those the operations of those under aeronautics as well, or is that something different at a NASA level? Um, no, it's it, it it depends, right? It, um, the 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 aircraft um, that that NASA has. Um, are obviously they're all they're they're center based and and really they are, um, you know their missions and their funding um, are based on their you know what their need is what their application is so um, you know so exploration systems um, obviously operates aircraft just for that that um, you know the purposes you talk about whether it's range safety or for um, you know photography whatever the case might be we, you know most of the so the aircraft we operate are um, are resident at the research centers and and tend to be used for aviation related research. Although, um, you know, some of those aircraft do do have double duty and and sometimes do, um, you know, do support other missions. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the way that NASA's made up today of of mission directorates. Um, and I, I when I was thinking about this, I kind of equate this to the way that you mentioned the military a minute ago and how the different roles and responsibilities of the different branches, you know, came over time. Back in the day, there was a little bit of a turf war over who was going to be the space agency. It was at the Army, was it the Navy, was it the Air Force. Eventually, now we're in an era where there's a space force. They're still in charge of cyber. So there's like always this next round where you're trying to figure out how do the organizations fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to take out, you know, the first 30, 40 years of NASA's history and, and look in the modern era and say, you know, how do these mission directorates fit together? Do you think we would still put NASA together in this way, where there's this space side and an aeronautics mission directorate? Or do you think there would be an environment where, uh, I guess I'm wondering about how you feel the commonality across those mission directorates fits in today's day and age? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting hypothetical question. I guess the broadly, um, yeah, you would, you would, you know, you, you tend to organize based on the, the needs and opportunities of the day with as much foresight as to where the future is going as possible. But, you know, given the long history of NASA, and if, you know, if you did take out those, you know, first several decades, um, yeah, you might, you might organize differently. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't speculate to say exactly how, but, um, but I do think you, you probably would because, you know, the, the, the era is different and you're, outlook for needs, opportunities, and future would be somewhat different. That said, I think, you know, the real, um, the real important factor here is what are the needs and opportunities of the day and how do you accomplish those? And I think, um, what, 
what NASA I think is is good at, and um, and certainly we here in aeronautics believe we're, we're we're quite good at is is you know we can you know we can partner and we can work across lines to to really focus on what those needs and opportunities are and to to capture those. Um, so, like I said, we you know we I think we're um, you know we are working on important things like the sustainability of, of aviation. We're working on things like high speed. One of the crossover areas that we're working on is hypersonics, so air-breathing hypersonics. You know, obviously today all um, access to space is, is rocket-based, but um, you can envision a future where air-breathing um, hypersonics could provide a, um, a, a mechanism for, um, for at least some aspects of, of launch or certain, you know, launch missions and so forth. That's a really um, hard, you know, kind of technical area that we've been working on for decades. But um, that's still uh, an opportunity out there that that NASA Aeronautics um, works. We have the expertise, we have the facilities, we have partnerships with DoD and others to do just that. So, I think um, you know, if you look across the board at the kind of things we do, um, you know, we've we've taken that heritage and we've applied it to the needs and opportunities of the day. But um, you know, would we be organized the same? You know, I think the you know, probably the easy answer is no. Um, but you know, do we, are we effective and, you know, with, with the needs and opportunities that are in front of us? And I'd say the answer is definitely yes. I think there's certainly also a a facilities, um, commonality there. Like you were mentioning with the, with the wind tunnels and, you know, even some of the, the facilities that are out at, um, Plumbrook where you've got vacuum, you know, and, and all these satellites and spacecraft going through there as well. There's, Commonality on a hardware side that um, is interesting to consider as well. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the you know the research centers are multi mission centers. Um, every mission director does business at the research centers because they have facilities and they have expertise that enables them to to contribute in really important ways to all all mission directorates, all NASA mission directorates. And you know the you know the the, the history is of those research centers is aeronautics. Um, but the future is is to contribute to all missions. The other aspect of uh, reorganization is that I don't think the space side would be as happy with the new branding they would get. Uh, NSA does not have the the best branding in government, and I think <laughs> your your A is the one that makes NASA really shine. So <laughs> I think that's probably a, an aspect as well. Yeah, no, we're we're you know we're, we're really proud of that first A, and um, we think we deliver enormous value to the American people. And we deliver enormous value to NASA. Let's head right there right now, talking about the the things that have direct lines from aeronautics out to general public. Um, what are some of the tent poles that you use as examples when you're explaining things that have made their way to you know our world today as we know it? Yeah, it's really interesting. You you can't get on a, any airplane today that doesn't have NASA technology on board. Um, you know, one of our catchphrases is "We're, we're with you when you fly." And it really is true. So if you look at a, say, let's take a modern airliner, you know, the wing design for modern airliners are, are called supercritical wings. Um, that was a NASA innovation. Um, even swept wings and area ruling, things like that for, um, you know, for um, high, higher speed, you know, transonic flight and so forth. Those were either, you know, developed at NASA or, or certainly improved at NASA, you know, things like winglets, um, structures and materials, even the flight deck and the way, you know, the way pilots work together were fundamental human factors, um, innovations at NASA. I mean, I like, kind of like to say that, you know, when you get on a airliner and you walk down the, the aisle and if you look, you know, if you look in behind you at the flight deck, 
you look to the left and right, you know, and you, and you see the wings out the window. You look at the engines um, that are hanging off those um, those wings. Um, all of that has has NASA on board. The only thing we we I will take uh, I'll be proud to say we don't take any credit for is the the close uh, the close quarters that you, <laughs> that you have thin to be in on the airplane. <laughs> Listen, I'm five foot four, so I don't have a problem with the seats. There you go. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do those things make their way out? Is it, is there, are there different ways, right? Are there, are there tech transfers to commercial markets? Is it, is it basic research that eventually feeds into the engineering that goes into these commercial departments? What's the exact methodology there? Yeah. Like one good example that people can observe today, um, is if you look at a, um, a modern, um, engine, if you look at the back end, you'll see something that looks like a kind of a serrated edge to the, the back of the engine. Um, and and, the, and we call those chevron nozzles. And the, what they do is they actually reduce the the, the noise signature of the of the engine um, so that that aviation is a friendlier um, it, you know is friendlier to local communities and so forth. So how do we get there? So we got there because um, first there was you know a, a need, a recognized need for lower noise. And then we had the expertise to, to think about the fundamental the fundamentals of noise generation from jet engines. And we had innovators that said, hey, we, we think we've got a technique. And basically what it does is it mixes the flow between the, the core jet and then the, the fan um, to, you know, get a, um, a reduced overall uh, jet velocity, which reduces noise. But it'd be one thing for our, us, us to, you know, for our innovators and our researchers to come up with that idea. But we develop it at low t- lower TRL, lower technology readiness levels, and then if that is promising, then we'll start to to go to higher TRL. But we want to do that in partnership with industry. So in this case, we would do that in partnership with engine manufacturers, so that there's a natural technology transfer to those manufacturers. Because it's not like it's a piece of hardware that we would give to them. In the end, it's really a set of design techniques and principles that they would use to do the final design for their engines. And so by being part of um, the, the process of, of raising the technology readiness level, um, they have firsthand knowledge of exactly how to do the design. And obviously, you know, everything we do, we, you know, we do it, um, as, you know, to the maximum extent possible, um, for the, the greatest application. So, you know, we write, um, technical and scientific papers, we deliver those to, to conferences and so forth, and those become part of the technical record that's available to, to folks to, um, you know, to, to do these applications. But I think the, the thing that contributes the most is the partnerships that allows, you know, industry and university technical folks to work with our technical folks in NASA facilities um, to really gain firsthand exposure and knowledge, you know, to the, the technology itself and, and how you go about analyzing and designing um, those technologies. So, and, you know, there's, literally thousands of examples of, uh, of that across the decades. How do those uh, certain kinds of projects or innovations and, and eventually full-fledged programs, how do those develop into major focal points at aeronautics? Is there some criteria that you use to decide, okay, this is a baseline technology that could make a huge difference in commercial mm-hmm. or private markets? Like, What are the criteria you use to assess whether it's worth putting the weight of aeronautics behind an initial, an initiative? Yeah, no, it's a really important question. And we kind of um, look at it from at least two, um, two perspectives. One is 
more of a top down. We we work with industry, with with universities, with stakeholders, and so forth to really look at the aviation landscape, the aeronautics landscape, and say what are the major challenges and opportunities that are that face uh, aeronautics and aviation over the long run, um, and how do we organize? How do we create a strategy for for either overcoming a challenge like um, sustainability, like reducing the environmental impact of aviation, or an opportunity like how do we get back to higher speed, you know, flight, you know, supersonic and hypersonic flight, or how do we, you know, um, create new um, avenues for mobility um, using new types of vehicles, and so things like um, electric vertical takeoff and landing for air taxi type operations. So we have that. So we, we, we spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about, talking about and coming to agreement across the community that this is the future that we really need to aim at. And then once we have that, we also then take a bottoms up look and say, you know, with our, our, our subject matter experts, okay, what are the best, you know, what are the best ideas for actually addressing those opportunities? You know, what are the, the technical avenues that, that could actually take us to those futures? So, you know, so for example, you know, in let's take high-speed flight and say a return to supersonic flight. You know, one of the challenges is um, is overland noise, right? So, you know, supersonic aircraft create large sonic booms. Um, well, that's why there's a prohibition against overland supersonic flight because those booms are very disturbing to um, to communities, and in some cases, can um, depending on the strength of the boom, can actually cause damage, broken windows, and so forth. But over time, you know, in working with RSMEs and so forth, they've um, developed uh, better methodologies that allow us to design supersonic aircraft that don't produce those loud um, sonic booms, that soften the shock waves that come off of, of supersonic aircraft. And so we've been able then to put together a program that says, okay, let's go out and prove it. Let's, let's you know, actually, you know, develop, um, you know, a... a um, you know, some, some supersonic configurations that would actually be uh, low noise. And then we work with the FA to say, okay, if we can do that, how would we get to a point where we could actually uh, reduce or, or to eliminate the, the prohibition against overland supersonic flight? And so we essentially need to, to go out and, and fly it over, fly a configuration like this over communities, prove that the communities. Um, find it acceptable, and then deliver all that data to the FAA and to the Inter- International Civil Aviation Organization so that they can produce a standard, an overland noise standard that would be acceptable. So that's what we're doing right now. We're building the X-59, which is an aircraft that was specifically designed to produce a, a, a very low noise, you know, soft supersonic, um, you know, soft sonic boom. We call it a kind of a sonic thump or a sonic rumble. Um, and we're, we're at the final throes of actually putting that vehicle together, getting it to, to flight um, next calendar year. And then um, once we validate that it, it's producing the, the, the noise signature we expect, we're going to go fly it over communities. Um, so that's, a, it's, that's an example of how we take a, a top-down look at what the opportunities are, a bottom-up look at what's possible, and then putting that into a, a well-designed and crafted uh, program to actually make something happen. I find it quite interesting because I feel like if you were to go out and do a general public poll and had people write priorities for different sections of NASA, right? Human spaceflight, robotic spaceflight, aeronautics, just to name three. 
I feel like people would nail aeronautics in terms of like things that we feel like we should have in the world that we don't. Supersonic flight, electric flight, you know, more advanced drone usage, autonomous. Like, I feel like people would nail that, and the rest on this, especially on the human spaceflight side, would be totally jumbled. So, I I find that kind of cool that you're striking the exact balance between, um, you know, you're you're reaching out ahead into the future and saying these things are what we want to work on, but you're not going, you know, you're not working on warp drives. Like, you've you've picked the things that are out of reach now, but that feel like they should be part of our modern world and. It's such an interesting balance to to continually get that right as a as a mission directorate. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's exactly what we try to do: reach out far enough that it's outside the grasp of today's industry, but not so far that that it's um, it we, we can't um, plan a path to value for the American people. Yeah, because that's that's really the that's that um, sweet spot that we need to hit. Now we do, there is a part of our program that, um, you know, we give our researchers and we've, we also have a part that gives our universities an opportunity to, to really reach and say, you know, you know, do the, do the wild and crazy things. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that's, that's, you know, uh, the seed corn, that's the fodder for what's for sure. after. That's your roadmap the, in 10 years and 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, let's talk more about X 59. I, I have never mentioned this in in public before, but uh, I have flown on the Concorde, and so supersonic flight is something that I feel like I I got to experience once. My my dad at the time was like, "This thing's going away in a couple of years. Like, I won't be mad in the future if I spend too much money on this airfare airfare to fly on this once." Uh, yeah. So I was I think nine, and uh, it was before nine eleven, and fortunately I was able to. My dad and I got to go up into the cockpit when we were. 60,000 feet. Oh, two. Cool. It was like probably one of the experiences that made me a nerd about all this stuff. Um, and, and so I feel like, you know, I have this memory of what felt like, cause I was nine. I didn't know that like, you know, there were all these other problems with how much it costs to run these things. And then the overland uh, sonic boom situation. And so like, as I got older and learned about what was going on, I was like, Oh man, this, that sucks that it happened once and it's gone now. Yeah. Um, but, but with what you're working on X 59 and then, thinking about this transition back into commercial industries as uh, boom supersonic is making a lot of headlines as they're signing these uh, memorandum of understanding with mm-hmm. different airlines. It, it feels like an in- interesting spot to really dive into what's going on there. So um, specifically, I want to talk about X 59 is like you said, focused on making a lower sonic boom. Mm-hmm. Um, but so is that, is that airfoil and, and you know, the, the body of the airplane that you're focusing on and less so, uh, the engines that might be used to drive what is eventually a commercial application. Cause I know that's one thing that boom is still kind of figuring out is what they're going to do for propulsion. So how, what is the NASA take on, on what you're providing to that segment? Yeah. So, so right. It is the shape of the, the um, airframe itself of the vehicle itself. It's um, for, for the X 59, we're just using an off the shelf um, engine. Um, uh, but, it's a pretty it, nice it's, shelf. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a pretty nice shelf, though. It's a pretty <laughs> nice shelf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a military. It's a you know military engine. Uh, the 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 thing you got to do right is to put the put the the engine essentially on top of the vehicle, so your inlet's on the top and so forth to, to avoid um, you know the 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 engine and the and the sort of the nacelles and everything else being a part of the 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 you know the sonic boom challenge. So we put it on the top, but. Um, 
so it doesn't, you know, we can get away with, with using a, you know, a military engine. Now that said, you know, and that's for that overland portion where the shape of the vehicle really is the dominant issue. You know, when you get into landing and takeoff noise, then that's a whole nother, you know, whole nother issue that you need to solve. And, and we're doing some work on the landing and takeoff noise where jet noise, you know, the, the noise of the engine um, does become a, a larger uh, because the dominant um, issue you got to deal with. And, and, you know, you've got, you know, because of the, the way in which you would have to design um, a supersonic um, aircraft, you are going to end up with higher jet noises, higher jet velocities, and that will lead to, to, to higher jet noise. Um, and so there are some really particular issues that you have to solve around landing and takeoff noise, and we're, we're working on some of that. But yeah, for overland, it's the shape of the vehicle. You just have to distribute the the, the lift and the loads in a very um, careful manner to avoid the shock waves coalescing coalescing into very large shock waves that can make the, their way all the way down to the to the ground. <clears throat> so through careful shaping that you can really only do with modern CFD techniques where you can really um, understand that flow in a lot of detail um, using those uh, uh, those computer methodologies and then testing it out in wind tunnels and obviously ultimately in flight. But um, so that's what we've been able to do. Cause if you think about Concord, that was 50 years ago, that was designed, you know, designed. So yeah. technology has advanced enormously since then to the aerodynamics, but, al- but also the engines, right. Engines of um, much later weight, much more efficient, um, much lower noise and so forth. Air, the, the materials and structures that we can use composite and so forth are much lighter weight. So you can get a lot more, higher efficiency, um, a lot lower noise, even just using the baseline technologies. But there are, you know, there are, um, you know, the specific things you have to do in order to get, again, to the low boom, in order to get to um, low landing and takeoff noise. There are some specific things you need to do to both the inlet and and, and the nozzle um, and to the cycle, you know, to the engine cycle itself. Um, there are issues around upper atmospheric emissions because you are flying higher, and so you're emitting um, higher in the atmosphere. So there's upper atmospheric emissions you have to deal with. So there's a there's a whole range of of in addition to the sonic boom, there's a whole range of issues that you got to deal with. Which we are, you know, we only have so many resources, so we're kind of doing it um, a, bit, a bit one at a time. In the meantime, folks like Boom are out there doing kind of first gen, you know, first next generation <laughs> supersonic yeah, yeah. aircraft, right? That uh, will set the set the pathway to you know future commercial developments. So they're primarily looking over water for overwater operations um, and so forth. But that that's not the the ultimate vision. But that's a start at a at a, a new commercial market. So um, so yeah, I, I think that's you know um, um, you know it, it's a very complex problem um, and one we are one where we try to take. You know, what are the, the best roles that government can play um, and not to get in the way of, of you know, what the commercial, um, what the industry folks can do? And what's like even, again, like if, when we're looking at feasibility, you you could come up with like the greatest technology in the world, but if it's not going to have a life outside of NASA, it's like really cool basic research, but it doesn't have that effect on the world that, that you want it to have. So. You know, yeah, I, fact, I feel it's, like it's the way a, that you're talking about knocking down some of these challenges or even just working with the FAA to say, what would we need to prove to be able to license this over land usage? Like yeah. engaging at that level is something that companies like Boom aren't going to have the funding or bandwidth to do right now. And it's a perfect role for NASA to play. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the uh, you know, changing a standard is, is hard long-term work that um, industry really can't do on their own, especially something like a overland supersonic flight standard um, and getting to a, a level of noise, which is acceptable. That's, that's something that you really need a, a government entity like yeah. NASA to do. But in addition, by doing this work and by, by proving this out, we're also validating these um, design um, codes and design practices that industry can then pick up and, and utilize to build low boom aircraft. And so we, you know, we work closely with, even though we're doing this work, um, industry is, is there with us learning about how to do the design um, and what it takes to actually build a, a practical vehicle um, that, that actually satisfies those kind of, those kind of standards. I, th- I feel like in the testing phase as well, you have, um, you know, we mentioned NASA branding earlier. It's It's got a really good brand in public. So NASA rolling up to a community and saying, hey, do you mind if we do some testing and we'll see if we can do supersonic flight again? That hits different than some commercial company coming in and saying, we want to fly a bunch of planes over your house and see what it's like. Like that, I don't know, people would be jazzed to find out, oh, NASA's flying a plane over my, you know, over my house. That seems really cool. So hopefully that's yes. what, that's the response you've been met with. Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, um, a couple of years ago, um, down on the down in uh, um, Galveston, Texas, which is right on obviously right in the Gulf, um, we're able to do a um, a, uh, a flight technique where we take um, an F eighteen that we operate out at Armstrong, and you can do a a, a a dive maneuver where you dive the aircraft and then you pull up, and what it does is it and, and you go supersonic, and you when you pull up. It creates a sonic boom, but rather than coming straight down, it kind of goes parallel to the ground. And so if you if you offset that maneuver from where the community is, that sound will travel over the community, and it, it somewhat approximates what a low boom might be like. So we were able to do that maneuver um, off the, 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 the coast because right underneath the aircraft is a really loud boom, right? So <laughs> you want to do that. You want to do that carefully. So we do that over the over the Gulf, right? And then the, the noise propagates inland. And, and so we, did, you know, we, we wanted to do that just to test out the community, um, you know, the community survey techniques. And, and also the, you have to put microphone arrays everywhere because in order mm-hmm. to really do the survey, you got to know exactly the noise that was heard by the community. So we were able to, to look at you know, how we would deploy uh, microphone arrays and measure the noise and all that kind of stuff. So it was a really good test. But I, I raise it because um, you know, there was an excitement um, within the community about doing, you know, being part of a, a NASA experiment and so forth. And, and they, um, in fact, they invite, they said, oh, please come back when you have the X-59 and do it again. The challenge, interestingly enough, right, is, is you really want the community to be entirely objective. So you don't want to be <laughs> too excited about being part of it and, and saying, oh, this is great. Let's do, yeah, you know, totally. You actually want them to, to respond. Yeah, you don't want to test this over a bunch of aerospace nerds. Those are like, yeah, yeah that was awesome. It was a supersonic <laughs> plane flying over my head. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so we do have to do things carefully. <laughs> Even to start, you know, doing secretive branding, I guess, so that people don't know it's a NASA plane. I guess I guess that refutes what I was just saying. But <laughs> Well, it's, it's a balance, right? You, you do want the support. In fact, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, our folks are doing are, is working with the educational community. Because if you think about it, um, Boy, having, you know, obviously universities are, are, are very interested, but just think about the STEM opportunities to, you know, local schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and so forth that can actually, you know, be a part of mm. 
of this um, endeavor, right? And, uh, you know, so it's a great opportunity to, you know, for sort of citizen science kind of, 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 of opportunities and just, and just educational, you know, learning about, learning about aviation and how air, aircraft fly and supersonics and so forth, because, hey, there's, there's one up there doing an experiment yeah. right now. Let's talk about the other X-Plane that y'all have been working on, the X-57. Um, tell us about this program, what the similar kind of goals are uh, for where this is heading in the future. Yeah, so this, this is a very different um, thing. So um, this is all about electric um, propulsion. And um, some of your, you know, your listeners, you know, may know that, um, you know, there's a number of companies out there today that are working on electric vertical takeoff and landing. So, so basically rather than having, um, you know, gas engines, whether they're gas turbines or internal combustion engines, um, powering props, you're using electric motors to power the props. I mean, it gives you a lot more design flexibility. You can do a lot more things because, you know, electric motors are, are so-called scale free, right? They're, they're, you can make them as efficient at a small scale as a large scale. So, by going to electric, it, it um, actually allows you to do very novel designs. It also is, you know, at least from an operational perspective, is is very environmentally friendly. Now, obviously, you get you have to get your electricity to charge the batteries from somewhere. So, depending on the grid, you know, um, it would have various levels of, of environmental impact. But so the X fifty seven was, uh, you know, we started this years ago as a way to really look at what it takes to um, design a distributed electric propulsion system to integrate it, um, to test it. And then obviously to, you know, to test on the ground, obviously go out and go out and fly and so forth. And, and so that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a distributed electric propulsion system on a, on a basically a GA aircraft. So there's, um, the ultimate design is, is for, you know, two cruise motors on the wingtips, that would be the primary propulsion while it's in flight. And then it would have a, a series of distributed small props, small, you know, electric motors and props along the, the, the leading edge. And you would have those on for takeoff and landing. And primarily what you're doing is, is just increasing your, um, your lift characteristics by having those on, which is, you know, so rather than having high lift devices, which are expensive and, and, and difficult to maintain on a GA class aircraft, you would just have these very simple, distributed electric uh, motors on the, the leading edge for those those um, parts of flight. And then you could re-optimize your wing to be extraordinarily efficient for for cruise operations. So that was kind of the idea, but you had to do all this. You had to do the design, um, and you'd actually have to do all the integration of that. And so so all of those electronics in a very small space, you know, uh, the, all the um, EMI and other issues you got to deal with, I'm in order to make that happen, get the efficiency of your motor controllers, your motors way, way up in order to, to uh, make sure you're not getting, you know, too many thermal issues and so forth. So all that work had to be done. And now a lot of folks have done that, but the difference is we did that all in the public, right? So all of that, that data that we gathered um, is all been made available to, um, you know, to standards committees and to industry and so forth in order to, to, um, to do their designs and, and to look at, the standards for test and other things. In fact, you know, when we were looking at the batteries, the, the, one of the first rounds of, of batteries, we had a, which euphemistically called a thermal runaway, which is essentially the, the battery pack exploded. Um, and it caused I love a, names for yeah, explosions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and this was in a test, you know, obviously in a test, um, 
uh, in an experimental facility, so it was, it was fine. We were doing it just for that purpose to, to really push the batteries as hard as we could. But by doing that, we learned a lot about what it takes to contain uh, failures in battery packs so you don't end up with, with this thermal runaway or, or these explosions and so forth. And that's all been commercialized now and, and is available um, on the market. So all this learning, and that's all before we got, we haven't even gotten to first flight yet, but all of that's occurred all before our first flight, all the learning on uh, how you design the, the motors, um, how you design the power electronics, um, the power, the, the motor controllers, all of that, the batteries, the integration, all that's been um, developed and, and documented and, and delivered to standards committees and, and into technical papers and so forth. So that's all about supporting this, you know, X57 has been all about supporting this new industry that's being built around distributed electric propulsion, primarily in the, the vertical takeoff and landing um, area. But there are folks out there also developing conventional takeoff and landing, similar to, to the configuration of the X-57. So um, so that's been a, and we're getting close now. Um, the latest projection is we'll have that aircraft in the air in December of this year. So um, cool. Very close. We're, yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, but we've already delivered a huge amount of value to this new, this new industry that's popping up. It sounds somewhat similar to the uh, advanced air mobility mission that you yes. have going on as yes. well in terms of the vertical takeoff landing. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that. If, if there is crossover between those programs or, or just, you know, things that, that are shared between them because of similar fundamental tech there. Yeah. So, so there is in fact, and the advanced air mobility is kind of an umbrella term um, that we use that refers to, um, Exactly that, a, 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 a different kinds of mobility, right? Today, if you, you know, the majority of people, if they use the aviation system, you drive out to an airport that's away from the city, you know, and you pass through security, you get into a big airplane and you fly to another airport and you do the same thing at the other end. What we're envisioning with advanced air mobility is 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 having aviation systems that, that support um uh, transportation in much smaller distances, so maybe within a city, or between a city and and and, and a, a rural area, or between um, sort of regional stuff. If you look at today, you know most of our a lot of the the, the smaller regional routes are either subsidized by the government or have gone away mm. because it's really hard to make money. But if we can get to vehicles that are really efficient because they use they're electrically propelled and maybe a bit more automated than than most aircraft are today, so you don't need two pilots and so forth. Maybe you get away with one, and eventually maybe, you know, it's fully automated, and so there's no pilots on board. So, you know, you could think about, you know, like I said, air taxi. You can think about, you know, package and, lar- you know, larger, um, you know, cargo deliveries. You can think about, in fact, you know, some of the exciting things are the public good things you can think about, right? So today there's a uh, um, we are losing, you know, the rural areas are losing access to healthcare, but we have world-class healthcare in urban areas. Well, those, if you talk to the urban healthcare folks, they know that they've got to provide, um, they've got to reach further and provide those services to, to more people in rural areas. So they're already starting to adopt small UAS to move, you know, uh, medicine and, and laboratory work around those urban campuses. But if you talk to the really innovative folks, they'd love to use advanced air mobility to move doctors to rural areas. They can't do it today because it's just, there's no efficient way to move a doctor that far and take them out of service for, you know, you know, hour, two hours and so forth. But if they could do it in 10 minutes or 15 minutes, they could really start serving um, a, a 
a much broader um, area than they can serve today. And so, so there's a lot of potential value to these the use of these EV tolls and these EC tolls um, to serve mobility and serve the American public, um, both for commercial purposes, but also these public good purposes. Another area that we're really excited about is the use of this kind of technology for fighting wildfires. Today, you know, aviation operations and in, in wildfires are pretty limited. They're very important, right? You know, you, you drop large loads of, of water or, or retardants on fires, um, or you do some surveillance and so forth, but they can only operate during the day. They operate at low density because the way they operate, um, they're, they're, they're pretty hazardous operations. Yeah, it's because so, the flight paths on these things are just terrifying to watch a they video. Are, aren't you they? Know, yeah. This plane's yeah. swooping down, pulling up right over a ridge, or it's just, yeah. it's, every video is exhilarating. But <laughs> Exactly. So we can bring this kind of technology to that as well and provide more precise operations and more precise um, application of of you know water and so forth more um, you know more surveillance and so forth but it's not just the vehicle you know for all this to work you need an air traffic management system that will allow it to work you need automation systems that will allow it to work um, you need you know vertiports you know just like airports except you know like more like heliports vertiports right that are automated and and in the right areas and, and can support all this you need safety systems, right? Because no one's going to get on these if, if these aren't safe um, systems. And so you need you need prognostic safety systems that enable these to be as safe as an airline operation from day one. So all of those kind of things, in fact, are a big sweet spot for NASA. That you know we have those those that expertise, and we could bring that to you know to this system. So because right now the companies that are they're developing these vehicles. And we are doing, you know, we're working with them as well because we have expert, obviously expertise on the vehicle side um, and like around noise and so forth, you know, noise prediction and propagation. So we can do th- that kind of work. But if you if you work, if you talk to them today, right, they want to certify in the next few years, but then their operations are going to be pretty limited because their ability to, you know, to, um, to really um, utilize the current aviation system is, you know, they, they want to fly differently than airlines fly, right? So the, 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 the air traffic management and airspace systems aren't set up to support their kind of operations. And so they need a lot of innovation in that area as well. And that's what NASA is bringing to the table is to enable not just a few of these airplanes to fly, but hundreds, thousands, millions of these airplanes to fly and deliver these kind of benefits. That's where the value to the American people will really be when we do that. So the X-57 fits in because, you know, that's a, that's electric propulsion is critical to making, you know, that market, the two technologies that are critical to making that market work. One is electric propulsion. The other one's automation and autonomy. And then all the surrounding stuff like air traffic management and so forth. Those are the things that are critical. And those are the things that we're, we're focused on. I I do want to dig into the air traffic management bit of, a little bit because um, there's some areas that I find interesting crossover between the focus that you have and what people are talking about in future spaceflight operations. Um, you know, if you listen to SpaceX talk or anyone that's working on reusability and they're talking about how they re- need these frequently flying reusable vehicles, um, can't really do that without airspace operations that are, if you're, if you want rockets to be aircraft like, you need the operations of them to be aircraft like as well. So, you know, looking into that future, I'm curious if there are things that NASA is working on in the airspace management area that could be passed on to the orbital spaceflight side of the industry, how you could 
transfer that sort of knowledge or if there's even things today that you're doing out at the uh, launch ranges that, you know, trying to trim in the closures that we have for, you know, I don't know if you've ever been flying on a day where there's a big launch, but you're going to fly in a really weird route uh, that mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't have otherwise. So mm-hmm. what, what kind of crossover is there or, or do you foresee in the near future? Yeah, so it's, that's a it's a it's a great question and um, important question and and so a couple of years ago, a couple of years maybe ten years ago now, um, when the small UAS folks wanted to figure out how to fly, our folks um, did a fundamental innovation called UAS traffic management, and really it was taking a modern network architecture because if you think, I don't know how much. Your your listeners know about how the air traffic management system works today, but it's a closed architecture, um, and you know it's it's essentially government contractors selling these systems to FAA, and the FAA does you know um, does all the operations right, but it's a very closed architecture. But that was not gonna that's not the path forward for the future, right? You really want a modern network architecture, open system with third party services, just the way you operate, you know the internet today, right? And iPhones and everything else today, that's the way you would want to operate. So NASA developed that for, for a small UAS to operate. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that is the, that's the future of how you get everything to, to sort of work, right? Is to really transition to more network, modern network oriented, uh, you know, um, architecture. Um, where third parties can provide services and so forth. And, and you obviously have fundamental, you know, in, inherent safety um, um, requirements as well that need to be met. So you think about what I just talked about relative to AEM. You want to apply those same, and we are applying those same techniques there to extend that. Interestingly enough, it's, you know, for orbital operations, it's the same kind of thing you want to do. You know, you want those, you want that modern network architecture, you want third-party services, you want that information sharing so that, so that the, the, you know, you can, you can overlay the kinds of applications that are required to, to maintain, you know, um, good, um, uh, you know, good situational awareness and, and safe operations. And so we are, we are um, at a low level, we are um, working to transition those concepts um, to the space community, and we're working closely with the, the FAA to basically transition over the long run, you know, air traffic management to, you know, to, to that kind of a, a paradigm. And the way to, you know, the way we're doing that is not in the, the primary, you know, airline heavily, you know, uh, utilized space, but uh, if you think about what's above 60,000 feet, it's, it's what is called upper E airspace. It's one of the areas we're working on FAA to, to, where there's not really direct control today of upper E, let's let's create a an ETM. We call UAS traffic management UTM. We call it an ETM for upper airspace, um, and so we can start to to look at parts of the airspace that aren't don't have the kind of control that the you know that the big airspace class A class B airspace has today, and we can start to bring this kind of paradigm to those airspaces. And FAA calls it XTM or for extensible traffic management. And then you can think about these different, you know, so you can think about, you know, what would you, what would you do in orbit? What would you do in upper E? What would you do at low, you know, in kind of class G airspace, you know, low altitude airspace and so forth. Um, so that's what we're doing. And, um, and that, and I think that paradigm is one that, that really can, um, for the long run, serve the, the, the future airspace. 
one last bit of um, potential space crossover, because we only got a couple minutes left. Um, NASA is currently operating a, an aircraft on another planet, and uh, they just announced a couple more that are heading out to Mars in the near future as part of Mars sample return. And so aeronautics is going interplanetary at this point, and I'm curious, you know, what is that something that aeronautics is ever going to be involved in in the long run? How do you see that going? Are there things that you would like to experiment if you were given a budget to go experiment with aeronautics at Mars? What kind of things would you tackle? Yeah, well, in fact, I mean, the reason, um, you know, the reason that, uh, that uh, you know, that uh, little helicopter that could, that, that small UAS is, is um, working on Mars today is because of um, the NASA aeronautics expertise that we brought to the table. We have folks that have worked vertical lift for decades, you know, for and, um, well, as an organization, but that we also have individuals that have worked this for decades. Um, and so we, we brought that expertise, um, you know, to the table and it was utilized, you know, so um, today, and it, that continues to happen. So our investment in, in, in revolutionary vertical lift is what we call it. Uh, we have some some resources set aside to support the science mission directorate in the design and development and test of of new um, you know vertical lift and other aircraft that could operate on other um, other uh, planets and other celestial bodies and so forth. So so yeah, we 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 were a part of it, um, and we will continue to be a part of it. And as the the opportunity arises, if there are things that 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 we can learn to advance aviation in general, we will certainly do that. Um, so that's been a, it's been exciting for the folks that have worked vertical lift for their entire you know, careers to to be a part of something like that. And certainly, Aeronox is is um, happy to 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 work with Science Mission Directorate on those kinds of things, and and we will continue to do so. Yeah, and Dragonfly, I should have mentioned as well, heading Dragonfly, out to Titan. Right. Although that one, you might feel like they're cheating. They got a really dense atmosphere and low gravity, so <laughs> it's like easy mode out there. <laughs> once you get there, getting there is tricky, but once you're yeah. there, it's like you know. Um, are there any other parts of aeronautics that we didn't talk about that we should finish up on? Or do you feel like we got a nice uh, cruise through the mission director right there? Yeah, well, I think just maybe a couple of things on, you know, things to watch for. Um, we are right now, um, we are in the process of, um, of, uh, of evaluating proposals for a, a large-scale um, sustainable flight demonstrator. This will be a, a transport size X-plane, essentially, one that will demonstrate an entirely new configuration that will be much more efficient than the standard kind of tube and wing vehicles that uh, folks get on today. We're really excited about this. This is the path to sustainability. It's the path to reducing carbon, to reducing fuel burn and so forth by getting to much higher efficiency. So um, we're going to hopefully award um, a, a contract it's actually going to be a Space Act agreement um, in uh, later this year, or maybe a little bit into next year, and then fly later in the twenties. So that's going to be really exciting to watch. We are already uh, working on megawatt class electric propulsion that that's a- applicable to large transport aircraft. So imagine a you know you're the next you know getting onto a onto a seven thirty seven class airplane. That's a hybrid aircraft, right? That's that's both uh, you know a trans. Uh, tra- um, uh, turbine engine as well as as well as electric uh, combined. Um, continuing to work on on improved turbines and and better materials and structures for the vehicles as well. So and and fuel right. How do we get to um, you know to, to sustainable aviation fuels and maybe hydrogen and so forth for the future of, of aviation. So I want to put a 
basically, you know, have your listeners look out for that. There's going to be some really exciting flight demonstrations over the next several years that uh, you don't want to miss. Yeah, I'd like to come out for the uh, the low boom demonstration. So once you pick a spot, maybe I'll book a flight and uh, oh, yeah. head out because that would be super cool. You're welcome. You are welcome to come. Well, thank you so much, Bob. This has been amazing to spend some time with you and talking about this side of NASA that uh, people need to think more about because it is super cool. And I think, you know, like we mentioned, a lot of these things are things that are in our life today that are less so than other parts of NASA. So a lot closer to you and, and super cool to hear about everything that's going on over there. So thanks again. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. Thanks again to Bob for coming on the show and a huge thanks to Bo Holder over at uh, NASA Armstrong who helped set this up. Uh, it was a really, really cool conversation. I'm happy that we were able to have it here on Miko. Uh, very, always a special time when you get the associate administrator of uh, a NASA mission directorate to come on the show. And I have to say, NASA's associate administrators are really amazing. They are all doing spectacular jobs, I would say, across the board. And uh, it's it's really cool to have that level of leadership, uh, which sustains across administrations, you know, in, in ways that administrator positions and others do not. Uh, it's really cool to have such a good set there uh, running NASA. So cool to have such a long conversation with them too, to, to really see what's going on within their directorate. So thanks to both of them again for uh, what was a really cool conversation. And thanks to all of you out there who support Manage Cutoff. There are 886 of you supporting every single month, and that includes 42 executive producers who made this episode possible. Thanks to Simon, Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Ryan, Donald, Lee, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, Moritz, Joel, Jan, David, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, David Ashenot, Frank, Julian, and Lars from Agile Space, Matt, the Astrogators at SEE, Chris, Aegis Trade Law, Fred, Haymonth, Dawn Aerospace, Andrew, Harrison, Benjamin, Small Spark Space Systems, Schultze, and seven anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for your support. As always, if you want to help join that crew, head over to mainenginecutoff.com slash support. Join up there. Get access to Miko headlines if you are at $3 a month or more. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy staying up on all the space news that way, helping to continue Miko. Uh, it's a totally listener-supported thing, so if you like what you're hearing here, uh, send me a little bit of value back for the value I'm sending your way. And I am hugely thankful for all of your support. And uh, until next time, that's all I've got for you today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support, as always. And I will talk to you soon. 